Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. This Sunday is a rare fifth Sunday in the month, an occasion on which it's been the tradition of our community to take a second special offering for one of our missions partners. Now, this additional offering, which you can make online if you'd like, is above and beyond our regular monthly support. And what it does is it'll contribute to our shared effort with this partnership in extending in both word and deed the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. Now, this Sunday's special offering is going to be given to our missionary partners, Lee and Katie Humarian. And you heard from Lee about two weeks ago via this service. They boldly are sharing Jesus with the students and families in Lviv, Ukraine, through the ministry of Josiah Venture. And if you missed Lee's sermon, you can find out more about Josiah Venture and the specific focus of Lee and Katie's ministry via the links at the bottom of the screen. Now, appropriately enough, our next selection from the book of Psalms, Psalm 67, has been called a missionary psalm. For those of us who've grown up in the faith when we talk about this idea of missions, or for those of us who've been a part of the church for a long enough chunk of time, we can take the missional aspect of our faith, of Christianity, for granted. While most believers know and can quote the Great Commission from the Gospel of Matthew, the final command of the resurrected Jesus that is given to his disciples before Jesus ascends to heaven, what really is the mission statement of Christianity, while most Christians know and can quote this Great Commission, I wonder sometimes if we know, if we remember the why of our mission. Now, perhaps our default answer to why is, well, because Jesus told us to. But that doesn't really address the big picture, does it? I mean, taking the job description of our mission at face value is all well and good, but we need to understand why we've been given this job, why we've been given this calling in the first place. And as we soon will discover, Psalm 67 concisely yet powerfully answers this question for us. This succinct, radiantly beautiful, tightly crafted prayer is reflective of many other songs in this book that inform, that unpack our understanding of why, why we have been given the Great Commission. This short prayer based on a big promise reorients our perspective as we are reminded that we do not worship some localized deity, the God of a region, a people, or even a country. We don't worship America's God. We worship the God of all the earth, the God who has not just a heart for us, but for, and not just for our nation, but the God who has a heart for all nations. Here it is, Psalm 67. Good morning. Today I'll be reading from Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest, God. Our God blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Psalm 67 is one of a quartet of psalms labeled songs that express praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. In fact, if you read the liner notes, 
right above the psalm, these songs dedicated to the director of music call for a string orchestra to accompany the song. Now, we know from the book of 2 Chronicles that the use of musical instruments was instituted by King David at the direction of God. Music was played in conjunction with the sacrifices being made as part of the worship at the temple. So as we turn our ears toward the particular song that makes up Psalm 67, we discover that it's based on a triad, a major chord of three notes. Now, before we identify each of those notes, I want us to notice how the very first verse of this psalm, this song, evokes another well-established and very familiar scripture, what is known as Aaron's blessing or benediction from Numbers chapter 6. In Numbers chapter 6, as the Lord establishes the priesthood of Israel, Aaron, the first high priest among the Israelites, is instructed to give this benediction to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. One of the purposes of this benediction was to remind the people that it is the Lord who blesses Israel and not the priests. However, notice how the psalmist has rearranged Aaron's benediction. You just heard it. Aaron's benediction began with, the Lord bless you and keep you. But here, Psalm 67 begins with, may God be gracious to us. In this reworking of the Aaronic blessing, grace is highlighted first. The first note of this chord of three that lays the foundation of this song is grace. And this is always the right note on which to begin whenever we invoke the Lord's presence through song or prayer, because whenever we approach God, we do so thanks to grace. Grace is the first note because the grace of God determines every other note we can sing or pray. Now, we can't appreciate the sacredness and glory of grace unless we continually understand and remember just how badly we need it. Why do we need grace? Well, because we each and together are imperfect, flawed people living in a broken world. The world is not the way it's supposed to be because we do not live together the way we were created to be. From the beginning of time as we know it, humanity willfully chose to reject our Creator's intent and purposes for all life. And eons of human history, marked by life lived in denial and rebellion, underscore how such a posture of living, what is determined sin, has become unnaturally instinctive for us. Another way of saying this is sin is the first and ultimate global pandemic. Sin is a savage and lingering disease that throws its darkness across all continents and islands so that there is not one square inch on this earth where humanity treads on which sin has not left its impact and stain. The devastating effect of this plague is not only that it ruptures our relationship with God, but our relationship with each other and even ourselves. Sin erects a barrier of separation between us and God, but it's not our creator that pulls away from us as much as we isolate ourselves from God and then a vicious cycle results. The further we are from God, the more distant and at odds we find ourselves with each other, the more divorced, the more of a stranger we become to our true self. This universal contagion affects us all and it is inevitably terminal. Sin is a death sentence. There is no cure. There is no recovery on our own, but the grace of God is greater than our sin. The Hebrew word translated here as gracious means to be considerate, to show favor, 
Despite the reality of human sin, our Creator remains favorably inclined towards us, still committed and unrelenting in doing what is best for us, helping us because we can't help ourselves, saving us even though we don't deserve it, even though we persist in claiming we're fine and just keep biting the hand that feeds us. God comes down to us in the person of Jesus Christ, revealing the fullness and perfection of who we were created to be, and then willingly taking upon himself the painful burden of all human sin, dying for us, and then conquering the death we fear. Conquering the death we fear and empowering us with his spirit so that in following him, we can become the best version of ourselves as individuals and in community together. In Jesus Christ, we witness the embodiment of the fullness of God's grace. In Jesus Christ, we come to realize graciousness is not something that God puts on and takes off depending upon the situation. No, in Jesus Christ, God does not decide to show us grace. No, God comes to us in Christ because God is gracious. Grace is what God does because he is gracious. Every action of God toward us involves his grace, his creation, his providence, his conviction of our sin, his gift of salvation, his empowering and equipping of us, his promise and provision of a better tomorrow, a full, abundant, and everlasting future. All of this is due to God's grace. This first foundational note of grace is then met in this song by the second note of blessing. Now, blessing naturally follows grace, for to experience the grace of God is to be blessed. God's grace is the basis of all blessing. The blessing born of God's grace not only makes life possible, but makes life enjoyable. And this biblical notion of blessing is defined as goodness, prosperity, fullness, and our tendency is to first think of blessing in terms of material gain or well-being. But biblically, blessing is first and foremost a spiritual state of well-being and prosperity. It's deep, joy-filled contentment that comes out of our identity and security in relationship to God. It's knowing who we are, that we are a child of God. It's knowing we belong, that we are part of the family of God. It's knowing we are loved, that God desires, that God pursues, that God embraces us. It's knowing we will be taken care of, that God provides and protects us. This is the greatest blessing from which all other blessings flow. And those other blessings often do take the form of physical prosperity and material abundance. But the fact that we are blessed is not contingent upon or necessarily correlated to such things. To be blessed is not about all the stuff we treasure or the positive experiences we have. To be blessed is the rootedness and assurance, again, of our relationship with God. It is the blessing of both our identity and our security in Christ that does not change that is not subject to the ebbs and flows of our material lives and thus cannot be shaken by poverty, grief, famine, persecution, war, or any other trial or tragedy we face in life. This is the blessing the psalmist is appearing, appealing to in this song. And the certainty of this becomes evident as we listen to the third and last note in this major chord of the song. The note that invokes the Lord's presence of God's face shining upon us. In 1979, 
Archaeologists excavating a tomb near Jerusalem discovered two small silver scrolls that were inscribed about 700 years before Christ. These two small scrolls represent the oldest existing text of Scripture, and they contain this particular phrase, the Aaronic blessing, and thus reflect the enduring power of this biblical metaphor. You see, this image of God's face shining upon us conveys the Lord's active and ongoing presence in our lives. The picture of the Lord's face continually shining upon us shows that we do not worship a distant, aloof God who now and then offers us a treat or a kindness, provided he's in a good mood, and provided as long as we use the right words or do the right thing. No, this image reminds us that we look to a Heavenly Father who seeks to be with us, who's looking upon us for our good, who openly radiates the light of his grace in our world, and we only have to seek and bask in the warmth and insight of his presence. We only have to do that rather than to keep living in the darkness of our ignorance, the darkness of our rebellion. You know, as a pastor, I'm saddened by the number of people I encounter, both inside and outside the faith. I'm saddened by the number of people I encounter who perceive our Creator as continually frowning on them, looking at them with disappointment and disgust. Now, while the Lord's face bears the pain and sorrow and frustration of witnessing us remain in our sin, choosing death rather than life, while that is most certainly true, that look on our Father's countenance comes out of a place of deep love and concern. It comes out of an earnest desire for the prodigal in all of us to come home and to stay home with him. So when we think of God's face, when we turn towards God, we don't see a face of rebuke or anger. We don't see a face of a cantankerous judge. We see the smiling visage of a passionate parent, the radiant face of our Heavenly Father who runs to us and pulls us close to Him. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done or not done, no matter how long it's been or how far away you've gone, hear this, you are God's beloved child. We are all God's beloved children. God takes joy in us and seeks to be with and for us. So his face shines upon us always. How different would our life together be if we walk through each day perceiving and internalizing the image of our Father grinning from ear to ear toward us? If we held on to that picture, if we held on to that picture of a smile lighting up God's face all out of his love for us, how encouraged we could be to live each day to live each moment out of his goodness rather than out of fear. Something that's important for us to understand with this major chord, this chord that lays the foundation of this psalm, really important, is the psalmist is expressing here in this first verse less of a petition. The psalmist isn't asking God to be gracious, asking God to bless, asking God to shine his face upon us as if these things are in doubt. It's more of a plea for the Lord to keep us centered in his grace to keep us existing out of his blessing, to keep us focused on his radiance, on living for his glory. Another little but significant detail in this song, this prayer that we could easily overlook but can't, is the repeated emphasis on the word us. Look at it. How many times the word us pops up in this song? There's not one mention of the word, of the concept, me, myself, and I. This is significant because increasingly, as we live at least in the Western world, to this idea of a private individualistic faith, you know, what I believe, 
my personal relationship with Jesus, my quiet time, my prayers, my Bible study, my church. Psalms like this one remind us that ours is not a private individualized faith, but a corporate public faith. Study, prayer, worship, and service are to be done together within the community and not by ourselves, not completely on our own. Listen again, God be gracious to us, Bless us. Make your face shine upon us. We look to a communal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A communal God who creates us to live together in community. The blueprint for human life is not a me, but a we. Living not all by myself, but living all together now. It's not good for man, for anyone to be alone from the very first pages of creation. When we fly solo without the mutual encouragement and accountability of our togetherness as the body of Christ, inevitably everything becomes all about me. As we craft God in our own image, we craft God in whatever we want or think rather than living out of God's image, the Lord's intent and purposes for all creation. My friends, the presence and power of God are revealed not when we live in isolation, not when we go our own way, but the presence and power of God are revealed as we come together in the midst of our diversity, wrestling together with the Lord and finally being united in going God's way. Now, this tendency, however, to individualize our relationship with the Lord doesn't just apply to the individual, to a person. It also can be something we actually promote and defend as a community. In our country, for example, America is often heralded as a Christian nation, which there's some truth in this. But what we often fail to recognize as we talk about how much America is a Christian nation, and we don't even at least mention, is that ours is not the only country rooted in a relationship with Jesus. If we doubt this trend, the next time you walk into a church, including ours, notice that while the American flag is prominently displayed, the flags of other nations are nowhere to be found. Ask yourself what message this communicates to those of other nationalities when they enter our houses of worship. Are they worshiping the God of America or the God of all nations? But even within the church, we continue to be divided into individual communities rather than being the collective body of Christ, right? With all our denominational differences, even if we don't call ourselves a denomination, with all our various theological debates and arguments about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are recognized by the world more by our differences and disagreements than any shared unity in terms of the gospel and the kingdom of God. And yet notice the thrust of Psalm 67. While this song begins by focusing on the Lord's grace, blessing, and presence upon the people of Israel, the psalmist soon shows that he has a much wider trajectory in mind. This is a prayer that God would grace, bless, and be present to Israel so that the rest of the world can experience God's grace, blessing, and presence. In other words, the psalmist is acknowledging each Israelite and all of Israel is but a bit player in a much larger story a grand, global, cosmic narrative that extends well beyond the borders of any one person or any one nation. Contrary to how the Bible is often viewed, the Old Testament was not for Israel alone. And then God suddenly had a change of heart and decided with the New Testament to be a little more expansive, a little more inclusive in terms of who gets to be a part of the story of salvation. No. While the Bible speaks of Israel as a chosen nation in the Old Testament, it's not a chosen nation in the sense of an exclusive invitation, 
but rather in the sense of becoming a chosen pupil, selected to come to the front of the class to show the rest of the class how the problem of human sin is being solved. When that student reflects the right answer, everyone else learns and grows as a part of the solution. When that student does not reflect the right answer, everyone else is negatively impacted and stunted. Everyone keeps trying to solve the problem themselves rather than looking to the master. Either way, the whole class is involved. That's the point. This short prayer and other psalms like it are rooted in a big promise, a big promise that doesn't begin with John 3.16, that doesn't begin with the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, a great promise that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, a promise God gave to the father of Israel, Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, listen, God told Abraham this, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The global focus of Psalm 67 derives from this divine promise of the Lord's purpose and intention all along to redeem all humanity. The psalmist asks God to make his way, his power known through Israel, and yet beyond Israel to save and redeem all the nations of the world. What's great is Psalm 67 is a song that not only looks back on a divine promise, but also prophetically points us forward to the fulfillment of that promise. In the coming of God in Jesus Christ, this ancient promise of Israel has been fulfilled more magnificently than the psalmist could ever have imagined or hoped for. For as the Apostle Paul marvels, the cross of Christ obliterates all human distinctions and divisions. While many still lament that death is the great equalizer of humanity, thanks to Jesus, the gospel, the willing and perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross, there is a better way. There is something greater than death that unites us. In Christ, we are united in the love we are offered. We are united in the forgiveness we are given. We are united in the life of Jesus in which we can abide and follow, a life that death itself was unable to hold. Through the gift of Pentecost, the grace, blessing, and ongoing presence of God's Spirit, Whereas once the nations were scattered due to the mass infection of human sin, again, back to the book of Genesis on that one, now, thanks to Pentecost, the nations are at last and will one day be finally gathered together in everlasting peace and harmony. For the prayer of Psalm 67 is answered once and for all in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, the Apostle John beholds this spectacular vision of worship before the throne of God. He hears the voices of heaven and earth unite in one grand symphony of cosmic praise to Christ, to the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world, who sits on the throne. And what are they singing? They're singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. They shall reign on earth. The prayer of Psalm 67, asking God that his glory and praise would extend to all peoples, comes to fullness according to the book of Revelation at the end of the world as we know it. Human history is not random or aimless. This world is not going to hell in a handbasket. Despite how things may appear yesterday, today, or even tomorrow, the entire created order is moving under the guidance of God in the trajectory of complete healing and everlasting wholeness. This 
is why we are called to go and make disciples. To go and make disciples, not just in our backyard, but to the very ends of the earth. The why of missions is more than Jesus commanded or commissioned us to disciple and serve others. Psalms like these make it crystal clear. The why of missions is our Father's heart for the drawing of all people, all tongues and tribes to himself, for all his children to come home and into his saving embrace. To put this another way, the why of missions is God doesn't just remove our self-centered heart of stone and just give us a new heart. The Lord gives us his heart, his heart for the world, his love for all people, his burden for the nations. So it's not enough for us to affirm this intellectually or emotionally. We've been given a new heart. As with everything about the gospel, we need to live out of this heart we've been given, God's heart. We need to live out of this conviction, out of this commission to call and serve the nations. If we profess to understand and abide in the truth that God's grace, the Lord's blessing, our Father's presence in our lives, that all of that has nothing whatsoever to do with our worthiness, has nothing to do with our goodness, nothing to do with our merit, then we have no justification for limiting or binding the grace, blessing, and presence of God according to ethnic, national, any distinctions. Because Psalm 67 is not a self-centered prayer. It's an other-centered prayer. It's a recognition that as followers of this God, we receive grace, we are blessed, we bask in the light of the Lord's presence, not only for ourselves, not just for our pleasure or benefit, but we do so as the means to glorify God, for God to offer these same gifts to the nations. God is gracious toward us so that we would be gracious toward others. We are blessed, we are assured and secured in our identity and destiny. We are resourced and empowered as we walk and grow by faith. We are blessed to be a blessing to others, to improve and enrich the lives of those who do not know the Lord. The Lord gives us the light of his presence so that we would let the radiance of his glory shine through our words and deeds done in service to those in need. The question we have to ask ourselves in the midst of this song is, are we worshiping and calling upon a localized tribal deity, a God cast in the mold of civil religion, a God cast in whatever our national, political, or personal interests and desires lie? Or are we seeking and glorifying, are we representing and serving the God of all creation, the God in whom there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all are one in Jesus Christ, the Lord of Jethro, the Lord of Ruth, Nahum, the citizens of Nineveh, the Lord of all nations. Which God are we worshiping? Now, perhaps all of this sounds great in theory, this idea of unity, but eludes our imagination and actual practice, especially during such polarized and divided times. Now think about it, no doubt the world of the psalmist was no less fractured than ours. No, it may be hard to believe, but it's true. As in our day, there was great human division and strife within communities and among the nations as well. And yet, despite such a bleak outlook in his times, the psalmist persisted in praying based upon God's promise, daring to call his own people to begin to change the world by putting aside their differences and instead uniting both their attention and their voices in praise of the Lord. Psalm 67 reminds us 
that the change and hope we seek, we long for, begins by embracing a much larger perspective than the narrow and often self-focused lens through which we view our lives. We need to perceive the God who is bigger than us, the God who is bigger than our community, the God who is bigger than any one nation. We cannot and we must not pray, speak, or act as if the God we worship is simply my God or our God. We can and we must pray, speak, and act in invoking, worshiping, and representing the God of all nations. This means instead of circling the wagons of people who see the world and others just like us, we need to direct our focus. We need to broaden our vision and imagination on the God who created this world, the God who continues to shape it, the God who calls, pursues, and directs the nations towards the wonders of his love, his peace, his compassion, his hope, his justice. Maybe, maybe if we kept our eyes on the God who comes to us in Christ, maybe if we didn't just pay lip service, but actually acted out of our praise for Jesus, we might find ourselves living in the kingdom of our God. The kingdom of God who draws circles, the circles of our shared community wider than we could ever imagine. Is it possible? That perhaps the beginning of the end of all that divides us, the starting point for breaking through all our brokenness and discord, could it be that the starting point is to focus upon and praise the one, the only one who has the power, the only one who has promised to bring us together? What might change in us? What might change through us? What might change among us if we began our days and ended our nights by counting our collective blessings? and giving gratitude to the God of all persons, rather than complaining, rather than criticizing, rather than looking for someone else to blame. Are you tired of complaining? Are you tired of criticizing? Are you tired of looking for someone to blame? What if praise was the first and last word upon our lips? Praise for life, praise for health, praise for strength, praise for resources, praise for love, praise for each new moment, praise for being precious in God's sight, maybe, just maybe, if it was praise, we'd stop hoarding what we have and fighting for what we don't, and instead, through the Lord's leading, share and serve from all that he has given us, from all that he continues to provide for us. Can you see that picture? Can you pray that prayer? Do you have that vision for our lives and for our world? I invite you, I invite all of us to pray this prayer together to not simply say it with words, but to let it be lived out of our lives and to continue to press forward in faith, hope, and love, relying on the grace, the blessing, and the presence of God in waiting and working for that vision, that dream, that promise to one day be realized. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.